Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we talk to Daniel Belker, an intermedia artist, inventor, theater director, and composer who sees technology through a humanistic and metaphysical lens. And for about six years, Daniel was leading the Music Not Impossible project, which endeavored to create technology solutions to let people who are deaf and people who are hearing attend the same concerts and enjoy the same music together. So we talk about that. We talk about the tools that Daniel designed that let you compose vibration for bodysuits and, and wearable devices. We talk about the state of wearables and what it's going to take to bring them to the next level, as well as therapeutic haptics. And finally, COVID-19 and what it means for the tactile internet. So here we go. Daniel Belker. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. And you? Good. Thanks. So let's jump right in. You have a really interesting background in creative arts, as well as a technical interest in new technologies, including haptics and their potential to do good for people. Maybe you could just start by giving an introduction and talk about your background and your bio. So my name is Daniel Belker. I'm originally from Brazil. I moved to the U.S. in 2014. I was always uh, an intermediate artist, right? Like since I was a kid, I, I always had interest in electronics and computer programming. And also at the same time, you know, music composition, piano, painting, sculpture, theater, all, all of those kinds of things, they melted. In, so I, I didn't see any uh, problem transitioning from one thing to the other, you know. So I grew up with this interest, you know, uh, entangled, to mm. use a, you know, a physics term. So as I grew up, my professional activities started, you know, going to that direction. So I... I worked as a computer programmer for artists and uh, as a music composer. I, I I did a few corporate events and I had my intermediate company doing like activations with you know iPad apps uh, and performers doing stuff with brainwave scanning devices, sending you know images on projectors, 3D projection mapping, a lot you know a lot of stuff on the space between you know science art and technology basically so then when i moved to the us I, I i started working at harvestworks digital media arts center in new york and i was approached by non impossible labs and they had this idea of helping the deaf to have a better live music experience through vibrations uh, and i was already doing things with vibrations i was creating like glass speakers for my own shows and i was always intrigued by this listening my, my actually I have a master's degree in theater and my, my thesis is around listening. So I was very intrigued about combining this interest. So it seemed like a very close project. So I started like researching, came up with a, an interesting prototype going like super fast in this story. There's a lot of ups and downs as you might imagine. But then I moved to LA, you know, to focus on these projects in 2015. Uh, and since then, up to, you know, the beginning of this year, I was a full-time employee at Non-Impossible Labs in the role of director of technology. Cool. So Not Impossible, can you say a little bit about that? Because um, I'm familiar, obviously, but I don't know that everyone knows what that company is. Sure. Um, and then how Music Not Impossible, which is a sub 
project of Not Impossible, how that works in. Yeah. So Not Impossible Labs uh, is a company created by CEO and founder Mick Abeling. The, the main focus of the company is to find people, you know, going through hardships in life, mainly like health issues or disabilities or, you know, any kind of physical problem, even hunger, you know, they have a hunger, not impossible project. And they tackle uh, these problems with a hacker maker uh, mindset, right? So it doesn't matter if you have the formal training, you have to have the motivation and the drive to help people. And then you can figure out, right? So you start learning, studying, but mainly the project is driven by this passion to to help people and, and to address their issue and, and, and tell the story around it. Right. And then Music Not Impossible, it started as a way of allowing people who are deaf and hard of hearing to enjoy music, right? And, and then it expanded beyond that. I think you were saying at some point in one of our phone calls, or, or maybe I heard about it online, that the idea here goes beyond other vibration solutions for people who are deaf because... In other cases, there are concerts that are created for people who are deaf, specifically for them, and there's vibration and subwoofers. Um, but people who are hearing don't really participate in that. They, they don't get anything out of that performance. And vice versa, a, a concert for somebody who's hearing can't really be enjoyed by somebody who's deaf. And so what I loved about this project was it was actually an attempt to allow people who are friends, obviously people who are deaf have hearing friends and vice versa. And so this was a it was a way of making music social again across this divide. Yeah, I think you just touched like the core concept uh, behind everything, right? Because you're absolutely right. Because if you go to a deaf targeted concert, uh, you know, specifically like a DJ thing, usually they have a lot of low end. It's almost nauseating. The music is really loud and it's kind of disorienting. On the other hand, you know, the deaf and hard of hearing go to a, a hearing people concert, like a regular concert for hearing. And uh, they feel, you know, left out. I've talked to a lot of them. They were like, yeah, you know, we cannot really dance. You know, the drum is doing those things at the end of the song. We mm. don't understand why people get excited by that. It's just like, mm, I don't I don't see the point. So one of, of my motives was ending auditory segregation, right? Like, so it's not just an accessibility tool, like we, we don't want to include the deaf. We want to create an experience for everyone, regardless of hearing level. And that approach is, it's like almost reversing the, the logic, right? Like instead of like, oh, we have this cool stuff for hearing and like, oh, the deaf are welcome to come. It's not gonna be as nice for them, but it's fine. No, no, no. It's an, a mind-blowing experience. Everyone can have it equally. And, and this was finally achieved, you know, so, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, it was insanely hard, right? It took a, like a, uh, it's been six years uh, that I've been involved in this project, four years, four and a half years, like full focus to get to the point where we are right now. So, but I think uh, we did it and, and it's, it's very interesting because there's a lot of nuances, right? Like, so usually when you feel natural between big quotes, uh, vibrations in nature, they usually come from low end. Right, like you, mm -hmm. you, you like a thunder and blah, 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 or a, an earthquake or even like, you know, your car, like mm -hmm. the, the motor or a plane. Right, I, I, I love the 
the planes have a very specific pitch for, for and, and it varies. They have this vibration thing going on, but if you go to the higher end of the pitch spectrum, you know, like a flute, like a you know a hi hat, you know, on a drum, they don't have these bold vibrations that you know spread across and people can really feel. So we worked on that. I had uh, an interesting conversation with with a guy once, and he was saying like, yeah, but this is not the natural way we experience vibrations. And he said, mm, natural. Okay, so let's talk about natural. <laughs> so our speakers, the natural way we hear sound, you know, of course not. A, a headphone, we can hear like a whole a soundscape, right? With cars passing by and birds singing. And this is coming from a single spot. That's yeah. not how you experience in life. It's completely different. The sound, it's spatialized, right? right? It, from different directions and you have this depth sensation and distance and everything and that is not lost it's emulated on on speakers and and headphones which is fine i I guess when the speakers were invented it was a shock for people to feel all the sounds coming from a single source a single spot it should be like very weird but you know as people got used and the advantages you know they were far uh, they far outnumbered the, the disadvantages, so people, and it started become like uh, becoming a uh, normal, right? Yeah, and not only normal, but all, like its own subdiscipline, right? How you present sound on a speaker system, two channel, five channel. There's a whole process to that, and there's a kind of an art and a craft to that. And what you've done with music, not impossible too. So you, so just briefly, I'll ask you to go through the architecture in a minute, but you have stimulators on different parts of the body. I think you have a vest and anklets and then bracelets, right? And you're, you're mapping different aspects of the audio program to different parts of the body in an intentional way. And what I loved too is, so it's intentional. It's not just like, you know, you feel the bass in your feet because it comes through the floor. So the bass goes there. It's not quite that. It's actually that you spoke to people who attended these concerts and asked them for their feedback, and then you iterated the mapping and made it like better and better to better represent the musical intention on the body. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, yeah, there's a story I, I love to tell because it was a paradigm shift mm-hmm. for me. Uh, when I was at a concert in LA and we had maybe 15 deaf attendees and they were wearing the device, they were like super happy. Uh, it was a a simplified version in comparison to what we have today, but it was really cool. And at a certain point, they came to me and said, like, could we feel the the kick drums and the bass on the, the wrists? And then I was, like, very confused because it was totally counterintuitive, you know, because you feel, like, stomping, and and that's how I used to, to design the vibrations, right, mm-hmm. even live concerts. I was like, why, why do you want to feel, you know, on your wrists? Oh, because we want to wave our hands in the air like everyone else. So that was the aha moment for the social component that mm-hmm. you were made for, you know, because then I was like, okay, so it's not just an experience. They, they want to feel part of the crowd and like everyone else and enjoying and taking part of this. So I actually did, I changed, you know, and they, they went nuts. They were like, ah, you know, they yeah, so, and they're pumping their fist in the air the whole time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, like everyone else, right? So right. for them, it was like one of the most, the coolest features. Mm-hmm. This nature, nurture d- discussion in this case, it's very interesting and, and complicated because things that are 
not natural at a certain point become, you know, very natural. I think once we remove all these preconceived notions about how vibrations in nature work or not, blah, blah, and then we have access to individual frequency and amplitude control in each of them. So you can create panning like the audio, move things across, and the, the skin has amazing sensibility to movement, right? You can create the illusion of movement like panning. So you feel like something is moving from one point to the other, even though it, it's not, right? It's just an illusion created by the, the algorithms controlling the technology. Yeah. Uh, and you have a lot of variation in your body, right? The skin has different sensibilities in the back, on the tip of your fingers and stuff like that. So uh, there's a whole world, uh, you know, to be explored. But I think we already went a long way. And especially if we start also evolving from the idea that this is a sound-related device, mm -hmm. which it is, and that was is the original intention. We love to provide, you know, live concerts. We we put a lot of effort to diminish, you know, latency to a minimum, so it's actually an, an enjoyable experience. But at the same time, if you think it's its own expression form, you know, using the, the skin as a canvas, so you can actually pair it with visuals, with uh, fireworks, you know, whatever you, you your creativity might might take you, uh, you, you can have very, very interesting experiences down the line, you know, and yeah, I think there is a very promising future to that. And we'll get into that because you just did an event where you were collecting a, a few different artists uh, work into uh, haptic experience. But before you get there, so going back to the mapping. So yeah, you were saying it's not really relating vibration to sound, but something higher level and it's kind of the music, right? Because you're, you're mapping instruments to different parts of the body. And I'm curious how that was done. So I know that you have a robust tool chain. Could you describe the design process and how the design process uses the software to render to these different hardware endpoints? Yeah, sure. So basically the idea was we lack the vocabulary, mm -hmm. right? To be truthful, we are at a point right now where we still need to understand and develop a proper language to address the qualities, the the sensations that we are able to produce using the, the skin. But we can borrow stuff from music and from visual as well, right? So let's think about a music platform, right? So in music, you can have instruments, right? So you have a bass and you have like a bassoon and you have a flute, a saxophone, whatever. The way the ear and the brain perceives the difference between the instruments, it's a very complex thing. So computers try to emulate the way we perceive sound and multiple sounds stacked together. Like it's extremely interesting, mm -hmm. but the skin, it has a completely different system. Let's call it like the biological sensors, right? So mm -hmm. these natural biosensors, they have been designed or, you know, they, they have been evolving to use a more Darwinistic term for completely different purposes, right? So they have different uh, ways of operating. So I'm, I'm giving like this, Big picture, it might seem like I'm rambling, but it's just to provide some context to what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. So the skin is, perceives the stimuli in a completely different way, right? So in a ideal situation, from a human perspective, the hearing goes from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Obviously, it's much more complicated than that. After 30 years old, the upper side of the range starts decreasing and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But the skin stops at 1000 hertz, the pitch and frequency discrimination, right? And if you get really, really fast and easy discrimination, I think it gets really tricky above 250 hertz. Mm -hmm. So 
if you start at 10 hertz, which is almost tapping, it's not perceived properly as vibration, right? You have, let's say, so we start at 20 hertz to equal the, the ears and we go to 250. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay, skin 20 to 250, ears 20 to 20,000. So yeah. there is no comparison in terms of frequency discrimination. We cannot even start the conversation, right? Right. But there is a lot of other stuff that the skin is really good at, as I mentioned before, like the sense of movement. So panning is much more critical to the skin than to the ear, mm. right? The other thing, harmonic component. So if you put two close vibrations that are like like in a chord interval, mm-hmm. let's say. So if you if you have a, a chord like this in sound that culturally uh, is associated with a happy chord, and this would be like the set, yeah, right. So all of this vocabulary has been built across many years, but mm-hmm. it has like a very hardwired relation to how we perceive music and sound, right? Yeah. But if you create this same chord on the skin, it's not going to do anything. Hmm. If you change from this to this, which is radically different in terms of sound, in terms of uh, vibration, it's not going to be a, a great thing. But if you just do something like this in sound, and, and, a, and a chord like that, uh, like the second one, this one, which is would be very dissonant. It's a minor second. Minor, oh man, you have here training <laughs> skills. Okay, cool, exactly, it's a minor second. So a minor second, uh, it would create like a very specific texture. Hmm. Yeah, it's very, very cool and interesting. And you, you can build off of that. And it's not that tense, you know, in, term, in sound, it feels more tense. So it would create wow. more of a, like a, a textured uh, sensation, you know, so, what I'm saying is like there's a lot of equivalence between music and the haptic art, as we call it. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of differences. And the way we relate one thing with the other, it's a whole new science and art form. So wait, that minor second, does it change the sensation if you locate the two stimuli close together on the skin versus far apart? Absolutely. How, how does that affect the emotional component of that? Uh, great question. So when when you have uh, those very similar frequencies, like far apart, mm-hmm. they almost feel the same. You are not able to discriminate, and they feel like completely detached. So let's say I have it on my wrist and on my the right part of my lower back. So and then I and I separate them like a half, a, a, you know, a half step mm-hmm. or minus second. You have to pay attention to, to notice the difference, a lot of attention, and it's hard to, to detect the difference, and they feel detached. But if they are very close, they create what we call harmonic component, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's basically a production of how they actually uh, relate to each other, because they're not matching, they're not, the waves are not going in sync, they're slightly off. So this creates a, a kind yeah, like of a, like a, a beat pattern. Texture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting. So you have a completely different meaning if right. you just apply the same thing. So in Foley, you know, for, for movies, they have a very interesting uh, knowledge that they say sometimes if you apply the original uh, material that provided the sound on the screen, so let's say you have a guy walking on concrete. Mm-hmm. 
and then you wanted to emulate that sound. So you put a microphone and then you have a guy walking on a concrete uh, square on, on the studio. Mm-hmm. It might sound completely off. So sometimes you have to go to a completely different material. So let's say it's a guy with like a, a soda bottle, a plastic bottle on, on a table. <laughs> right. And that will feel much, much more closely related to the image. So it's the same relationship with the vibrations. Sometimes we have to do things that are completely off to make the the experience of music and vibration seem completely cohesive. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. And um, I would imagine there's a lot of iteration needed for that and a lot of discussions with people who are deaf and people who are hearing and trying to figure out like what those components are. And the, the tool chain that you would use to do that would be critical because at least in my experience, like if you have to recompile or, you know, redeploy or reboot something every time you need to make a change, it's almost impossible to make progress. Whereas if you have a tool that just lets you experiment, iterate, express and iterate over and over, you can kind of dial in the experience and what you've done here, because you have this music background, you were kind of able to co-opt some of the music technology that people are using for electronic music performance for vibration composition. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, tapping into the existing architecture for music software, music music production software, it seemed like a very natural thing for me. But at the same time, it was really handy because a lot of the challenges have been already solved, right? So when you talk about MIDI files and they have been around for 40 years, right? Like mm-hmm. the MIDI format is amazing for those listening, they're not technically inclined, the MIDI, it's a form that was created uh, in order for the computer to talk with musical instruments. Mm-hmm. And they just updated, they went to MIDI 2.0, like the end of 2019, it's extremely new. But for 40 years, they stayed in the same form just because it was so light, well thought and convenient, mm-hmm. easy and light and everything. So the system accepts all of the MIDI capabilities. So even like a beginner digital audio workstation nowadays has a, a MIDI capability. So you just drag and drop notes anywhere and you can change the instrument. You can change the length, rhythm, quantization. Like you have like so many, many tools. Yeah. And you integrate with Ableton Live. You have modules for live and then you're using MIDI and OSC, right? As your communication protocols. Yes, we, we can use audio, MIDI and OSC right now. And we have the whole, like a whole set of modules for Ableton Live developed with me in, uh, in association with Francisco Colasanto, the director of the Music and Sound Art Institute in Mexico. Very knowledgeable, amazing guy. So we have this set of modules for Ableton Live, but at the same time, I created another piece of software called The Bridge, which is basically you can use Pro Tools, GarageBand, you know, whatever you want that you are familiar with. And... It just reads stuff into the software and then communicates with uh, wireless wearables. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more about this event. So it was oh, over a month ago now. It was right before all this social distancing directives began. And you're in New York and you had a collection of 10 or so artists come and do tactile haptic art performances and screenings. Can you talk about who was there and what did they show? The idea was uh, to create like a model that we would replicate, you know, throughout the country and, and abroad, mm-hmm. which is basically like we, we gather creatives and 
analysis and, and you know, technically inclined people to provide support as partnerships to the artists. And they would conceive a piece, right? So at the New York event, we had robotics. like So we had like robots playing cello and guitars. We had VR component with a very, you know, artistic uh, vision of several countries. So basically, the VR piece was done by Candida Borges and her associates. Chase Burton was the deaf movie director. He created like an outstanding piece. Patty Helen, one of, of the co-founders of Music Not Impossible, he presented like an amazing kind of music video using like solar explosions from Titan, you know. Mm. And, and he created this nice electronic music piece. You know, everybody loved that one. I created my piece using like live performance and robotics with my water drumming system, by the way, it's here. Wait, that's a and, water drumming system behind you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm seeing these... They are not they the like same. Gooseneck, yeah. gooseneck LED lamps or something like that kind of hanging over these beakers on mid-century tripod stands and wires coming off. I had no idea what they were. I thought you had some kind of wild lighting system or fascination with reading lamps or something. And they shoot water at a drum to make sound? They shoot water on water. But on then that. I developed a special kind of microphone that captures sound inside water. Uh-huh. And that amplifies the sound of the water and goes to like a guitar effects pedal there. So, and I can control all of them wirelessly. And, and you can control the intensity of the water flow, the size of the drips, the time. The, you can control basically everything. And they have like beautiful LEDs that react yeah. to, the, to the water. Yeah, I can send you the, like a short video clip of the performance if you want. I would love to see that. That's super cool. Yeah. Super, super cool. Uh, wow. So you showed that in New York too. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. was all sponsored by Zappos, right? By Zappos. I think Zappos, they were such an amazing uh, sponsor. They gave us complete freedom of, you wow. know, how to format stuff, how to curate people. And yeah, and we're learning so much, right? So one of the artists, she with her partner, Rhiannon Catalyst and Paul Geluso, the vibration was actually working while the reverb was happening, not her voice came out. Very interesting, right? Because you're creating like a vibrational emulation of the space and not the actual sound. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the surroundings. Yeah. So Chase Burton, you know, the deaf movie maker, or I should say movie maker, period, because he, his work is amazing. He created a kind of bubbly effect, mm-hmm. very fast attacks of the actuators in different areas. And very low frequency, so you could feel like, you know, to match his sound. It was super interesting. Mm. You know, I never mm. thought of, of that approach. And Pugelus as well, he he thought of a very smart way of creating like a spatialization system by driving specific frequencies and having like a, you know, a pitch tracking thing. So this pitch is associated with this area of the body and so on and so forth. Mm. So when you like a specific sound, it's going to be delivered to that area specifically. So if you want to move the vibrations across your body, just change the pitch. And that sound doesn't even need to be heard. You know, you can not address it. You, you, you don't need to send it to the speakers necessarily. But it's driving the system. You can create specialization based on pitch, which is something I, I've, I've also never imagined. So, you know, like we're learning. And this is so uh, fruitful and exciting, you know. But, but uh, you said you went to music school. Yeah, I did uh, 
undergrad in combination of a sound recording and music business. Unfortunately, the music business they taught us was how to sell plastic discs, which wasn't really um, that relevant by the time I was out in the in the world. And then I studied uh, music technology. So that was where I got involved in haptics and the technology behind all of this. But actually, one of the things that you were just talking about also reminded me, you were mentioning that one of your discoveries that seemed unintuitive that you did never expect, and I didn't either, was that people who are deaf or hard, maybe it's also hard of hearing, can feel higher frequencies than regular people, right? And I relate that to people who are blind. They have like superhuman hearing. And I'm just wondering, do you think that the people who are deaf who say that they like vibrations that are higher frequency than you know hearing people can feel, is that same thing going on? I, I don't have science to, to back this. I didn't study this properly because it's such a natural thing for me in terms of relationships and connections, but it's, it's a fact. They have a superhuman uh, between big quotes again, yeah. uh, sense of touch, you know, it's amazing. They, they are very fast and accurate. If I have two people, you know, one is hearing and the other is deaf, profoundly deaf, and I create like this very tiny uh, changes in intensity or the deaf, like 100% of the times they're like, oh, okay, this is changing, this is happening, blah, blah. Mm. And uh, the hearing person, it's going to be like, what? Yeah, I have to pay attention. And then, uh, and then weren't you saying too that people who are hearing can... Also, they appreciate the sound of the actuator and how it blends with the tactile, right? So you're yes. actually using the actuator to, well, you're using the actuator to just display music in a way, but it's a mix of vibration and audio, and there's not really a, a sharp distinction between them for people. Yeah, so so there, there are two sides to that question. One is the deaf side. This is, I have science uh, behind that, saying that the deaf experience vibrations in similar areas, hearing people experience music. So there is a pleasurable component. You can tell by their excitement. You know, they go like, oh my God, you know, and hearing people is like, yeah, this is cool. And they enjoy, they laugh. And But, but there's a heightened sensation to the deaf. And this is proven scientifically. I have a few papers around that. On the other hand, we have the hearing side of this comment, which is, as I was saying, the frequency stops at 250 Hertz, but as you go up the scale, the actuators produce more sound, right? Mm -hmm. And you can have all kinds of deployments to try to muffle it and stuff, but I was not concerned about that at all mm -hmm. because if I want the vibration to be silent, I just drive them, you know, in lower frequencies with high intensities and it's fine because, you know, you're not going to tell the difference between the, the, the speed of the vibrations anyways. But as you go up, uh, and you start actually hearing them and feeling at the same time, it creates like a reinforcement. Yeah. So the experience is really cool, you know? And sometimes when I had these demos and we would have video, sound and vibrations, a lot of times people ask me to cut off the sound so they could hear only the sound of the actuators, the vibration and the video, and they prefer that. Mm. And you have also bone conduction, right? So when you shut your ears with your fingers, for instance, you start feeling very well how the vibrations behave on your wrist, for example, by conducting the vibrations from your wrist through your your fingers, you know, to your ears. So I think the sound of the vibrations are also an interesting combination to be explored. Yeah. So something that has come up recently, and actually since I even started the podcast, has become an interest in the haptics community, or at least for me, is the application of haptics to wellness 
I mean, wellness is this wishy-washy term, but what I relate it to is in the past, haptics has usually been thought of as a modality that is best suited to match other modalities. You don't really have haptic sensations by themselves. You're usually in the world and you're seeing and hearing things and you're also feeling them. And so there's been this idea in haptic interaction design that your goal as a haptic designer is to match people's expectations for how things should feel based on the way they look and, and sound. Mm-hmm. Recently, there's been a spate of startups and devices that ha- have the purpose of providing just the sensation. There's no context. There's no meaning. It's not like you're listening to music through the skin, anything like that. It's literally just you're inputting vibration into the body or um, heat or cold or some other haptic modality, force, constriction. And that in itself is affecting your cognitive state or your emotional well-being or your health and wellness. And I know that you have started to go down that road with Music Not Impossible, at least the technology behind it. Can you talk a little bit about, I think there's a clinical trial for Parkinson's sufferers. Yeah, in 2017, I spent one year at Mount Sinai researching the technology for Parkinson's patients. We had 53 patients in two sessions each. So just for that particular trial, we had 106 uh, sessions. The results were crazy because we thought we would be treating tremors and we are not actually that effective with tremors, but a lot of the other symptoms we didn't expect. We were changing people's results you know, sometimes dramatic improvements and stuff. Hmm. So that became like a whole new project and a whole new product and a whole new set of ideas to drive the research. And then obviously, like, they have different demands, right? Like, it has to be portable and has to be smaller. We decided not to have a, a harness component because we didn't want to mess with the cardiac areas because that entail a much more complicated and thorough investigation before, you know, deploying them, right? Especially... Because most of the, not all, but most of the Parkinson's patients were elderly and we didn't want to, you know, put them at risk, of course. So we stayed with the wrists and ankle bands. And I had also a patient with spinal cord injury, right? Which yielded a very, very interesting and promising results. And mm-hmm. she passed away before we were able to conclude the studies. But we were having like outstanding results. So a physiotherapist was measuring her legs movement by, by 14 inches and she was deemed completely paralyzed for the rest of her life. And this was six months down the road, but 10 minutes, 20 minutes on the first session, she was already reporting different sensations in different areas of the body. So I think there's a whole new world to be explored in the specifically they talk about neuromodulation using heat, you know, which is one of the haptics areas. Mm-hmm. But especially the vibrotactile stimulation, I think there is a lot of promising paths on that. And if you add to that the form factor, right? If you have like two wrists and two ankle bands, and let's say you're having a, an artsy vibrotactile experience, that doesn't shut off your ears. You don't have to be wearing headphones, you can socialize normally. You don't have to be looking at a specific direction like your visuals for, you know, a screen or, or something to be receiving that experience. Nobody else around you will notice that you're having the experience if you have your sleeves on. So like it's an absolutely private uh, experience and you can have all kinds of things while maintaining, uh, you know, a normal social and, and functional life. So 
I think there's a lot of benefit on that as well. Yeah. So do you have any ideas for what comes next for the health and wellness applications? Yeah, so we had researches on the direction of, you know, cognitive load and Alzheimer's and also with autism, you know, PTSD, things that get benefit from rhythmic stimulation. Mm -hmm. Something that we have to talk about, this is the first recording that I've done since the COVID-19 outbreak really hit hard and everyone's been socially distant and quarantined for over a month now. And that is such a relevant topic to haptics. I know that in my circles, people are talking about that. One of the things that they talk about is that it's really too bad that haptics isn't more developed than it is now. People have haptic displays on their phones, but they aren't very socially or emotionally engaging. And haptics can be very much that with the right technology. You know, I, I think this will speed up the development of haptics because for a while, what I have been feeling, and I have discussed this with a couple of experts and stuff, and they agreed with me, which is the problem with haptics is not just a, an adoption problem or a, a consumer problem, but it's also an industry problem. One of the most fruitful deployments of haptics would be tied to wearables, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about how the industry is currently set up, engineers know zip about textiles, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't understand. And also people from the textiles uh, business, they get scared when they hear about wires and batteries and, and stuff like that. So there is a gap in the industry between, obviously you have Apple Watch and, you know, and stuff that people use, but like to really evolve the haptics adoption, I think there's a step before that, which is like an industry adoption, basically melding the textiles knowledge and, and area and expertise with the more advanced engineering concept. You know, like a couple of years back, I got one of those BMW suits that they keep your body warm as you're driving around. Oh, your yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, this is a perfect example of wearables, right? So let's see how the big guys do it, right? Mm. So I took like an exacto knife and open it up. It was a complete mess. All the wires are like, the battery was in a weird location. And anyways, like I put it there, close it. It looks nice and nobody cares. So it was just like a reinforcement of like, okay, uh, we still need to evolve, you know, in terms of how this technology is put together in order to really start, you know, maybe education. The formation of engineers has a branch of in universities that talk about wearables and haptics. And then people already come out hardwired to think in these different fields as they're integrated. I think this would help. Yeah. You You bring up a really good point there. Um, I agree with you that wearables seems a really compelling first use case for scalable, pervasive haptics. Also, another thing I've been talking to somebody about recently is skin contact material, you know, the demographics of sizing and, and, and all of these problems are really significant in wearables. Like, what is the material that you use to interface with the skin? Is it comfortable over long periods? Does it propagate haptics? In a, I mean, I'm sure you've struggled with a lot of those problems, but Absolutely. It, it's, Swag. you know, if it's too loose, you feel nothing. If it's too tight, it's painful. It has to be just right. And you see people uh, creating wearable haptics for the wrist, I think partially because it's easy to... Well, a couple of reasons. It's easy to deal with the sizing issue. You could have like two sizes or so with an adjustable strap. 
that seems to be the go-to design nowadays. There's a set of materials that is culturally acceptable to wear on your wrist that people expect to see. They don't blush if they see a wristband on. If they saw like a skull cap or headband or, you know, weird, you know, there's all kinds of different things that would just not fly, right? So yeah, I think there's actually a lot of interconnected problems to solve to make haptic wearables really happen at scale. Yeah, I think you touched a very interesting point, which is motivation. Yeah, and one of the foundational problems is the network. And I know that you know we talked about 5G and the tactile internet, how that's going to allow IoT in a way that hasn't been possible before because you're going to be able to have many, many more devices connected to a network and so this term tactile internet leads you to think of the idea of transporting the sense of touch digitally and being able to socialize and share emotional moments with people who are far away. You're so creative. Where do you think that will lead us? I think the, the coronavirus is a huge accelerator and the new normals that we are expecting for the future, right? Like when you cannot even shake hands with your friend it will be like a socially awkward gesture. What's going to be the new... So this kind of physical constraints that we're going to have from now on, yeah. I think they are also going to put some fire in this tactile internet. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. And awesome. um, we will connect again soon. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2020, Dave Birnbaum.